Sana, if you ever had an experience with something that you like doing and you're really good at doing it, but one time doing it, it goes so poorly, you question your life's decisions as to whether or not you should be doing it. Have you ever had that happen? Um, and our marriage doesn't count. Then no. <laughs> Are you going to make a mockery out of this podcast? I, you ask me a question and I answer and you laugh at me. Well, I appreciate your honesty and your candor. Well, the reason I ask, honey, is because I had an interesting experience this past weekend. Oh, really? I've told you about this offline, but I'm going to share it with you and... Online? Those who are... Yeah, online, so that those who are listening to the podcast... I just want to be transparent, bring this out in the open so I can just kick it in the teeth and say you're not going to get the best of me. So this past Saturday, honey, I had what I thought was going to be a great podcast interview. And it didn't go well. And I'm going to share why. But in spite of things not going as I expected them to, there was a really good outcome that came out of it. And first, I'm going to set the stage for what happened with the podcast interview that ultimately did not happen. And then I'm going to share why ultimately it was a net positive. Now, I had contacted somebody this past summer who was interested in doing an interview for the podcast. Great trumpet player. And I'm not going to mention his name because it really doesn't matter. <clears throat> but we had exchanged emails and he was out of town, in town, out of town. And I was in and out of the country. So things just didn't work out. But finally, it was going to work out that he was going to be in the city where we live, which is Virginia Beach. He was going to be uh, traveling in from out of town for a gig. And uh, it just worked out that he was going to be here. And I said, well, let's hook up for an in-person interview because those those are always the best kind of interviews. And so we had a place set up, uh, a place that I'd never done an interview before, but I thought it was a good central location for us to meet. And so I get there and I have my laptop with me and I'm, I've got my microphones and my mixer and everything ready. My, I use a Zoom uh, H4n for my mixer for my microphones. Everything is seems to be in order. I get there at the time that I'm going to get there. There's no place to power up my laptop. I have I hadn't scouted this out before. So I didn't know that there was not a power outlet at this restaurant where, where we were meeting. Well, that's okay because my MacBook Pro has got plenty of juice. It can last for an hour for a podcast interview. No sweat. So I'm getting things set up, getting my microphones out. I go to hook up my Zoom H4n into my MacBook, and I realize that I've recently upgraded MacBooks, and now I have this thing with the USB-C ports, and my Zoom H4n has the older, old-school USB, which does not go into the USB-C port. So I have to apologize to the guest who's now there, and I say, I'm, I'm very sorry, but I left something at home. I got to go get it. It's going to take me 10 minutes. No problem. I go and get the adapter that I'd bought so I can hook up the thing into my MacBook. I hook it up and there's no power. The thing does not power up. In hindsight, I realize it's because the computer itself was not plugged in. We're going to like plan C, maybe even plan D at this point. And I have my ATR2100 that plugs into with the USB-C adapter. 
And so now we're starting probably 20 minutes late, and he's got a gig, and I've got something going. So now we're just pressed for time. We're both feeling out of sorts. We're both feeling the crunch. And now we're sharing one microphone, which is not ideal because my interviews are like freestyle. The the guest will be talking, and I'll just politely interrupt and say, well, let's talk about this for now. Well, I would be thinking of something that I'd want to interject with into the dialogue, but I can't because he's got the microphone, and by the time he finishes his train of thought, whatever I was going to say has now left my mind, and I'm just left <laughs> sitting there thinking, what am I going to say now? Like, I don't send my guests a list of questions. I, I have learned that I can uh, just do quite well with just making conversation, and I know the direction that I want an interview to go. And uh, I, I'm usually pretty good at steering it in, in a good direction. So it, about 10 minutes into this, I'm asking just really lame, generic, really, really sophomoric podcaster 101 questions. Somebody that hasn't even read a book on podcasting. I'm just asking really, really silly questions. And I'm really not representing myself really well at all. And I said, okay, man, I, I tell you what, I'm just, I am not feeling this at all. I'm just not feeling in the groove. And looking back at the experience, we're, we've been really busy. We just arrived from Vietnam two weeks ago and you're getting situated and we're both going through major adjustments. And I just, I just wasn't ready, honey. I was just like, my goodness, it's something that I knew that I'm very capable of doing, but the circumstances, the whole aggregate was, I, I was just not in a mindset where I could do an interview. And so I walked away from it feeling deflated, like, my goodness, what? why am I even doing this podcast? Maybe I should hang it up and just do something else. Maybe just focus on the show that you and I do, Bob Ostan, and just say, so long, Trumpet Dynamics. It's been real. It's been a nice run, but it was demoralizing, honey. You look like you have something to say. Wow, honey, I don't know. If I was in your shoe, what would I have done? Probably I would have melted and went 10 feet under the ground. Yes, the, that was a moment where I wish that there was a trap door right. in the floor <laughs> that I could just escape. Even though you are a man, you wish once in a lifetime to become Alice in Wonderland. Right, right. I, <laughs> but you know what? That feeling comes because you, the, you don't know what will be the emotion of your guest or your customer or your client. But if you are very familiar with that person, that person is familiar with you, maybe it would have been much more easier. Yes, you're right. And part of the, part of the uh, discomfort of the whole situation was... I had just met this person just a couple of minutes prior, and I think we had met a, f a few years prior, but very, very limited personal history. So we have that, and so you, you want to put your best foot forward, and you always feel like you have to impress somebody when, right. when with the first meet. It's just it's just a different dynamic. But you know what? You saw all those problems. That's your analysis of what happened. Well, I think the only problem with that situation is, first of all, you you're working a full-time job and then you had to run errands and you have to do a lot of other things. And then in between, you have like maybe a, an opening of 30, 40 minutes and you book it for an um, interview. I think that was the wrong thing to do. I think you should have completely waited for a you know, proper break. But my big mistake with the whole situation was I just assumed that I had everything good to go. Like I, I, I just, I'm going on autopilot with my laptop. I completely forgot that I have these new USB ports that my microphone doesn't go into. Uh, I, I I didn't 
reconnoiter the restaurant to see if they have proper place for me for me to power up my MacBook. You know why? Because we just came back from Vietnam, and you have learned that in Southeast Asia, people probably don't think; others think for their customers. And in order to provide a lot of quality of service, not only they provide their services of high quality, but they also give some ancillary services. Right which is not directly related to their business. So probably you could have gone to a coffee shop, to a restaurant and meet your client and have a better ambience rather than a four corner of your office. And everything was there because it's Southeast Asia. Everybody use high technology devices. So it's very common. So you come here and you go to this restaurant and you suddenly notice, oh, wait a second. All of a sudden you remember you're in a country that they all use the same plug. (laughs) <laughs> or they have to use the same port. Yeah, and, and uh, again, it was just me basic, basically going on autopilot. And in hindsight, I should have been more proactive with making sure that everything is good to go, like do a test run of everything, go to the restaurant beforehand and scout it out and see if there's a, make sure that there's a place where I can plug in, make sure that I, I have the right adapter so that I can, hook in my mixer, do a like a, a test run. Like when I was in the army, it would drive me crazy when they would do rehearsal after rehearsal after rehearsal for the most trivial, mundane things. But you get into the heat of battle, like when you're doing the um, folding the flag at a funeral, the, the mother is in tears because her son has just died in combat. That's a high, very high pressure situation. And that's when muscle memory kicks in and they would they would rehearse it over and over and over and over. And they'd ask me to play taps. And I'd say, with all due respect, I know how to play taps and respectfully, I'm not going to do it. And, but that's a whole different issue. But the point is that they would rehearse it over and over and over. And muscle memory kicks in when you're in the heat of the moment in that really, really emotional moment where they're saying goodbye to their loved one. They just, they just act. They just do it. There is no, what do we do now? It's muscle memory. They just, that, that's why they do it. And it was annoying at the time, but you understand why they do it. Now, I did say that there was something positive that came out of this experience with this um, failed interview. Hopefully, we were able to work it out again. Hopefully, the gentleman that I met isn't too upset that I wasted his time, which I did waste his time. Uh, it, so, yeah, I put him out and it was just, it was inconsiderate of me to, to do it that way. It was unprofessional on my part, but there was a good thing that came out of it. And there's never, there's always something good that can come out of any situation. And that is, I got to meet one-on-one face-to-face with someone who actually listens to this show. People don't understand uh, how lonely it is to do a podcast. Like here we are, it's you and me, and we're talking and I love having you at my side and we're gazing lovingly into each other's eyes as we record this. But most of the time, it's just me talking into a microphone, looking at a computer screen. And every now and then you hear from somebody who listens to the show or somebody who reads your emails, they'll res- respond to an email that you send. And that's that's all well and good. <clears throat> but it's a lonely business, honey. And even though the interview didn't go well, and again, hopefully we can uh, work it out so that we can do it right again in the future. Just 
being in the presence of someone who listens to the show and flesh and blood, he's giving feedback on the show. Like, I like this part. Maybe you could do this a little better. That's invaluable. Just just interacting with a member of the market that we serve with this show was just, you can't replace that. And it made me think about all the times where I've been in ensembles or when I was in the military or orchestras I played in, bands I played in, whatever the case may be, you just, you have people around you and you just take it for granted, right? You don't appreciate that these people are giving off energy and you're feeding off the energy that they are giving. And we we get used to it. We, we, we just get, it's familiar to us and we we just assume that it's always there. And then we get into... Uh, something like a creative endeavor, like a podcast, and you don't have energy of people around you. You you get good feedback on the internet, which is welcome. All that to say is that you are around other people with whatever you might be doing, whether it's in an ensemble or maybe it's in a job situation, and you just get familiar with people. You just assume that that energy will always be there and then you get into a situation where where I am doing this podcast and it gets really lonely. And I'm not, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that it has caused me to appreciate being around other people in a ways that I didn't appreciate it before because when you lose something, when you get it back, you realize, oh, I enjoyed this. I enjoy pe- being around people. So I hope that my misfortune from this past weekend can perhaps bring a little bit of wisdom into your life with this podcast. Now, because the interview did not go as planned and we weren't able to have a fresh interview, I have to break my promise that I made to our loyal listeners from last week. I did say that there would be brand new content this week on the Trumpet Dynamics show, but sadly that was not meant to be. So, I am going back into the archives, and I am bringing back, I think this was episode number four, if I'm not mistaken. This would have been published in January of 2016, so this is going on seven years ago, and this is with the great Vince DiMartino. Uh, he had, I think he had just retired from Center College there in Danville, Kentucky, so now he is <clears throat> assuming that I was right in remembering that he had just retired. He's now seven or eight years into his retirement. And you you cannot, you will not find someone say anything negative about Vince DiMartino. He's a wonderful man. And we had a wonderful time. He was very gracious with his time. He just gave me a, a full hour of his time, just, just free gift so that I could share with uh, listeners of this show. And so I am Really glad to bring this back onto the show here in uh, 2022, nearly seven years later. So enjoy it. What keeps you motivated to to continue to grow and to continue to get better on trumpet? I think some people like myself and the curiosity of how to get better personally, that's one thing. And then hoping to make it easier for other people to get better faster than I than it took me. <laughs> that's the teaching part of it. I just love, and I love people that have the that attitude that they're ready to work hard, think, change, grow. 
the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting it to change. And a lot of people practice like that. They just keep doing the same stuff and expect it to get better. The reason things get better is because you don't do them the same way you did the day before. <laughs> so I think it's really important to and to be able to go visit an objective party and have them tell you exactly what they think you think they should. And then they can either choose to take that advice and use it or not. And I teach every person like they're going to be the best trumpet player that ever lived. I don't make a decision about that. They have to make that decision. But I want to give them as much good information as I can so that they can move on and grow and change. And that's otherwise, why take lessons? What's the purpose? Why continue to do it if you're not going to if you don't if you're not going to benefit from it and you're not going to alter your thought? Yeah. If they're going to stay the same, don't go. It's going to be a bad experience for both the teacher and you. (laughs) So, yeah, you want people to get. To better, And I enjoy because I learned something, and I like the challenge of listening to somebody and trying to move them forward, <laughs> give them advice. That's really all you do. You really can't make anybody get better at all. They have to resign themselves that they need to change what they're doing, whether it's something in rhythm, whether it's something with their sound, with their basic trumpet playing. Because trumpet playing isn't music. Trumpet playing is trumpet playing. It's a mechanical process. It doesn't have anything to do with music. The musical instrument is here. In the head. Yeah. Yeah. The trumpet is a mechanical device. A piano doesn't play musically. It's played by somebody who is musical. Hmm. But luckily for the people like me who, when I took piano class, that when I touch it, it sounds like a piano. Trumpet players have to figure out how to assemble that piano and make sure that it gets more and more finely tuned so it sounds like the piano we touch every day that's already put together. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, all the great music that's in their head will never reach the audience because the piano that we build with a trumpet might have strings hanging all out of it and the pedals don't work. I, I haven't heard that analogy before. How do you build a piano with a trumpet? No, the piano is the same as a trumpet. It's mechanical. But in the the case of a trumpet player, our bodies are part of the mechanical, the way we use the air. If the air is incorrect, the trumpet never will sound good. The next person picks up the same trumpet, they sound fantastic. So we have to train whatever is pre-trumpet to be correct, to be the correct fuel, the correct impetus to make that instrument sound its best. And the instrument, again, is mechanical. It's not musical. Can you remember at the time in your life where you sort of realized, I'm making music now. I'm not struggling with the instrument. We all struggle with it. But can you remember when, was there like a moment where you're just performing someplace and you say, I got this? Can you think of a time like that? I'll tell you, I think that's the way everybody starts. If you think about Suzuki violin, you ever seen the Suzuki class? I have not. Suzuki was a Japanese guy who started doing this in the, I don't know when he started, but I saw his crew in East, at Eastman in around 1960-something. And they came to the Eastman Theater. And I was just, I was a music education major. So I said, well, I should go to this because this is teaching. And I want to see how, what this guy does with his violin players. I heard all these things. I can't imagine how that would be successful. 
I went to the theater and I heard, oh, this cellist. It was a cello about the size of a violin or a viola. It was a tiny little cello. And there was this five or six or seven year old person. And they sounded like somebody in Carnegie Hall. And I said, obviously, they're doing something right here. And I realized that the connection between the mechanical device, the cello, and the mind of the person playing it were connected. It was going straight from there, straight through the instrument and out. And I thought about when I started, I really didn't have, I had a band director and he showed me some things. He was great and still my greatest inspiration. Basically, I just heard recordings and I tried to play like the recordings, which is what they do in Suzuki. They have they teach the parent to play a little bit and they have recordings of the things and then they play along with the recordings until they sound close to the recordings. Pretty good idea. And I think I kind of started that way because I, I started when I was 12. And by the time I was about 14 or 15, I was playing jobs with people. So I must have sounded good enough to be heard in public. <laughs> I don't have any recordings of that. I have recordings when I was about 16 or 17. And a lot of ways they sounded better than what I did in college because I was not, I was not inhibited at all, by the way, by playing. Well, was, wasn't, I, was trumpet your first instrument? No. Okay. Marimba? Really? <laughs> Yeah, my mom found one at a garage sale, and she bought it. And I took lessons with a local piano teacher because it was a keyboard. And they didn't have any—in my little town, they didn't have anybody who knew anything about rim. <laughs> Which so, little town was this? West, West, uh, at the time, it was Copaig, New York. We oh. lived in a very small—actually, that's where Marconi lived. You ever heard of Guglielmo Marconi? No, I haven't. He was a very person that invented ship-to-shore radio. Okay. And that was the first ship to shore radio transmission was from Babylon, New York, which is the town I lived in. I went to West Babylon schools. But we were when I was a young child, I was in Copay, which is a few towns over. That's you on know, Long I, Island, right? I, yeah, Long okay. Island. Yeah. My fam my wife's family is in Ronkonkoma. Oh yeah, that's not far at all. Yeah. Further further out on the island. Lake Ronkonkoma. Yep. It's great. But I played I listened to recordings. And I only had four recordings because I couldn't afford very many recordings. And I just played them over and over. Hmm. And I played along with them. And I didn't ever understand why I couldn't sound quite as good as the recordings. I could play parts of it, but some of them I just I didn't have enough high range or I couldn't play fast enough or whatever. <laughs> but I guess I tuned into the sound of those. I liked the sound of it, the trumpet, when I started. Even though I started on marimba, I didn't last very long on marimba because I had to carry it around. And <laughs> Only about, you know, eight or nine years old or something like that. And I wasn't into carrying that thing. I finally didn't do that anymore. And I didn't really like the piano teacher. He was old parlor piano teachers that hit you in your knuckles if you, you just hit the wrong notes and stuff. He wasn't. He was. But I learned a lot from him. I played in tempo. I played in time. I played in time and I played the right rhythms and stuff because he made sure I did. And I sang solfege in a little book he had. And so I didn't really know what I was doing, but it was very helpful. All right. So you switched to the trumpet at 12 years old and you're... It, yeah, I was... And so you were, you, were, you were using the Suzuki method before you even knew what that method was, weren't you? Yeah. 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 And I think... And I'm still a big believer in that, I, along with reading at the same time. But teaching people to play by ear is really a good thing because hmm. then they use their ears and not their eyes. 
people that read music as notes on a page, it's, it's not very good for brass players because their instrument doesn't work by sight or by finger pattern. You have to be able to move around based on what as a hearing experience. So if you see C, E, that's not going to work. It has to be C, E, C. And that triggers all the muscles in your body and the air to do the things that need to be done to get an E. So that's why our body is involved. It's part of the mechanical workings. Okay. So therefore, when you're practicing, if you're not... And I think I've always heard... Now, when I started playing classical music a lot, I was reading notes, and I always had worse endurance when I played classical music than I did when I played jazz. And I never quite understood that for a while until I realized that I used two different methods to play. So if I'm going... Those were all the right fingers for that. And almost the right pitch, too. <laughs> See? So basically, then I'm going to operate. There's no translation. I'm not trying to figure out how to get there because that goes along with the singing. <laughs> and and then when I played classical music, I was reading and transposing and doing all this stuff that was in the way of playing. So I, once I unlearned that, I started to play a lot easier on classical pieces and everything it just it almost overnight it was that much difference so a lot of the mental work that you had to put into playing classical music was a hindrance to you for a while yeah well, well i didn't use the right method mm. i should have used the same method that the suzuki people used or i should use the same method that i used for jazz but i didn't think of it i was so determined to play everything correctly and the right notes and get the perfect tuning and all of that and which is all creditable things that you need to do but the way I did it was off the mark until I realized that I just wasn't operating correctly. So would you, I, would you say you were like when you're playing classical music, you're how do I say it? You're like a jazz player playing classical rather than a classical player playing classical. No, not really. How, how I, would you describe that? I was a person that was translating to a different language. So in other words, I'd see C, C's and I'd have to translate that to make it into a C on the trumpet rather than seeing hearing a pitch because I saw a printed representation of a pitch. So if you're seeing a C and you go, C, that doesn't have any pitch to it. If you see, those are the right fingerings. My air was doing the right thing. The coordination is right, the tempos. So you're going to be right. That's why people teach solfege. And why it's such a good method, and it should be used more more frequently. Cool. Even though I don't do a true solfege, I look at it and I sing the intervals. I was speaking with your son, Gabriel, who was a featured guest on this podcast a few weeks ago, and he said that back in the day, you were quite the sizzling lead player, and you even <laughs> played with Clark Terry for a while. So I'm interested in hearing about your time with C.T., yeah, Clark was wonderful. He was always one of my idols that I heard in Duke Ellington records, and and I heard him play live. I went to visit him at the Tonight Show when it was in New York when I was really young. He invited me, and I went up to I just sat and listened to them play, and that was really great. And before I played lead with him, though, I was at school at Eastman School of Music. I was the when Lou Soloff graduated from Eastman, I came to Eastman. Mm. 
my high school band director was a great band director. Mm. We had a wonderful jazz ensemble at school. And it was very interesting because some of the people were better than others because they were more interested in practicing. Like one of the sax players played with Woody Herman's band. One of the trombone players led the Count Basie band, Dennis Wilson. Glenn Drews is one of the top New York trumpet players now. And they were we were all in the same band, along with the person that maybe wasn't quite as excited about doing it as we were. <laughs> but the band was good, and we learned a lot in there because my band director. So I actually became a fairly good lead player, inexperienced as I was in high school. When I went to Eastman, by some luck, auditioned and was the first trumpet in the jazz band for my whole five five years almost there, four years plus some post undergraduate yeah, sure. stuff. Yeah. And of course I got tremendous experience. A drummer in the jazz band at Eastman was Steve Gadd. The greatest acknowledged as one of the greatest drummers that's ever lived. Own players were in there were Jim Pugh, Bill Reichenbach, Dennis Good, who played lead trombone with Buddy Rich for a while. And the saxophone players, Jerry Nywood, who was in Chuck Man Jones group, and he passed away in a plane crash a few years back. A wonderful guy. Chris Vidala, he was in the jazz band at the same time as me. It, it was a rather wonderful time at Eastman. So I was trained by my colleagues as well as the teachers there, Ray Wright and Chuck Manjone, directed to jazz band as well. So, yeah, I got a lot of good help. So it Chuck Manjone was the leader of the jazz band? For a couple of years. Okay. A couple of three years. I don't know exactly. I can't remember exactly which years. The first year I was in the jazz band, they had nobody to do it, so they had the director of public relations from the University of Rochester, which Eastman is connected to. He was a jazz band guy and knew a lot about it. He was an arranger, and he was a real nice guy, Jack End. He actually wrote a really wonderful brass quintet, and he did the jazz band for one, one year. And then Chuck Manjone did it for the next three years. And I graduated, and I think he did it for one more year after that. And Red and Ray Wright took over both the jazz band and the studio orchestra that we had started there, that they, he had started there. And, uh, and he became the director of jazz studies, and then Chuck was no longer associated with the school directly like that. Yeah. I don't know why. I think he just was getting so busy playing feel so good. He became famous. Yeah. Chuck ever play the trumpet, or was he just a flugelhorn guy? <laughs> trumpet is actually if there's a record called buttercorn lady mm. and it's with art blakey and the jazz messengers he actually played with art blakey and the jazz messengers for a few years and he played very well and you listen to those records he sounded wonderful mm. really fine playing and his dad was a real jazz buff as well and every time when a great jazz player came to rochester he invited him in the house made a big meal for them and chuck got associated with a lot of people over the years, just because of his dad. His dad was really a great person. I loved his dad. Great person. Nice. Well, we were talking about Clark Terry, so I was yeah. curious about your experience with him. When I got to UK, University of Kentucky, in 1972, my first year there, 72-73, Clark Terry was my very first guest soloist. and Because he was the person that I really wanted to have as my first soloist. And he came and heard the band. And actually, I played with him on a couple of pieces. And he asked me if I would play with his big band that summer going to Europe. And I said, wow, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I'd do that. <laughs> so, Europe. And there's some YouTube videos on that. 
If you look, there's one called Rock Skipping at the Blue Note. That was an old Duke Ellington tune. And it features Clark and then me immediately after that. Wow. Well, I'm going to search for those and put those on the website for sure. It's really fun to, it's fun to watch them these days. <laughs> there was some really very youthful playing. It was some really, it's fun to listen to. And I'm happy I got a chance to do that. It, and I, so I played with his band a few times. And of course, I, I'd been in touch with him many times after that and played with him a fair amount of times after that. Well, um, I'd like to hear about this. I guess the first time that I ever heard of you was in 2008, and that's when I went to the Brass Band Festival in Danville. Uh, I, I was in the military, and I was stationed at Fort Knox, so it was just a couple of hour drive for uh, me. Yeah. But uh, how did that, I, was that your idea, or how exactly did that thing start? It started out actually as a uh, because of our town band, and the town band really was started by George Foreman, who was at Center College at the time, and also now is the director of the Arts Center at University of Georgia. He went down there and took a new job, so I miss him here in Kentucky. But he called me and asked me if I would play. Danville is known as the city of, city of first. First post office, first this in Kentucky. In the first this, first that. They wanted to have the first political rally of the, I guess it was 1918, no, 1980-something governor's race, okay? So they said, we can do it in Danville. Somebody came up with the idea of doing this in Danville because it was the city of first. So we'll have the first political rally debate kind of thing in Danville. So they they also said, we need a band just like an old-time band. We're going to do it on the back of a hay wagon. And these politicians are going to get up there and they're going to do their stump speech. And we need like a town band to sit below that and play in between, make a big rally and stuff. So George Foreman called me and he says, look, I'm going to do this band. And the weekend that they, was, they were going to do that, I was supposed to be out of town. So I couldn't commit to doing it. So I had one of my grad students do it, who actually played in the, he's in the, the president's Herald Trumpets mm-hmm. right now, Paul Klontz. He's in the army, still in it. And he's the leader of the Herald Trumpets now. But so I said, look, I'll send my grad student. He's really a professional trumpet player. He's played in symphonies and he's, and he'll do it. And if I'm available, if I, if this thing doesn't come through, I said, I've committed to it. But if it doesn't come through, I'll just, I'll come to the thing. I'd like, I'm interested in see what it is. I've never been to a political rally before. So it actually happened out the week of it. It got canceled, my thing. But they'd already rehearsed and done everything. So I said, I'm just going to go. I want to go and see. And there's actually a picture of the band playing at this rally. And you can see me in the picture. I had to get a magnifying glass out to find me. But And I met George that day. And George, I said, George, I said, this is fantastic. I love town bands. They're great. And he thought I was kidding. Why is this guy interested in this little town band? But then the newspaper, who had actually put this whole thing together, the Advocate Messenger newspaper, they started getting calls and notes about the town's band, which didn't really exist. So George, Mary Schurz, the lady who ran the newspaper, says, George, look, you have to, people are asking about the band. Can you get a band together so we can get some concerts? And the Messenger will pay for it. We'll do this. So George said, yeah. So he said, I'm going to call that guy and see if he was really serious about playing. I said, I certainly am. 
<laughs> and I don't, I've very rarely missed a concert since. Mm. And that's 27, 28 years ago. Wow. Since, since the band festival started. And the band started about three years before that. So, so it's this, almost 30 years. So this little band that started to support a political rally yeah. sort of turned and into this huge, every June is, you have this big festival. Yeah. And we started, wow. we, started, we said, gee, George, after a year or two of the band just doing these concerts in the park, It'd be really nice maybe if we had a day of music where we invited some other town bands and maybe got a fairly well-known person to come. Maybe the newspaper will help sponsor that. And then we could make a little event out of it. It'd be really fun because we had a park that had a bandstanding and everything. So basically, George and I just brainstormed it. And George, I was always a good idea man. <laughs> and George was the kind of guy who could make it happen. Yeah. So about three weeks later, I get a call from George. I was teaching at UK at the time, University of Kentucky. And he says, Vince, he says, can you come to Danville on Thursday? I said, what for? He says, we're having a meeting of the Great American Brass Band Festival Commission. I said, what? What's that? I'd forgotten totally about it. <laughs> just because we were just brainstorming. We were on a little trip looking for band memorabilia at a postcard show because we were crazy about bands, yeah. both of us. And he says, yeah, don't you remember talking? I said, well, yeah, I do remember talking about a band. He says, they stopped doing this one little festival they were in town, and I proposed that we do a band festival. So the newspaper and the town and the county are going to help out. We're going to have our first Great American Brass Band Festival. I said, yeah, I'll let me reschedule my students, and I'll be there. Wow. So we had this meeting, and the very first year, I think the Empire, yeah, the Empire Brass was there the first year. And the very first year we had, I think it was 17,000 people. We advertise George's he's that's his job to advertise concerts, get people into the hall. Yeah. This was a free festival and still is a free festival. And so we said, Hey, everybody went, Wow, this is great. Let's do it again. <laughs> so we started doing it and you, you saw me. what it's still going strong and it's grown and there's lots of other aligned events that are with it. Yeah. Balloon so race, right? The balloon race is still going on. There's a Bayou Brass thing on Friday nights now where there's like a street feel. And, and the bands still play, and then we still have a pretty much a similar perspective to the performing groups. Salvation Army Band, Service Band, Brass Quintets, Guest Soloists, bands. We try to, we're trying to get more regional bands involved. Young people, we're trying to get them involved to, to continue the tradition of doing bands and things. So it's grown to a lot of things. We, there's a children's thing going to be this year. We The Bach Company is donated 30 P-Bones and I think Cornets too. I'm not sure. I haven't been part of that. Yeah. but And they're going to do a children's thing, a young children's thing, like a Suzuki thing. <laughs> and it's going to be great. It'll be wonderful. You know, really young people involved. And then there's master classes. Gabriel actually is the guest soloist this year, my son, and Phil Smith. So he's in good company. Tell me the story, because Gabriel was telling the story about how you recruited him to play with you and Al Vizzuti and Doc Severinsen. And he was like, my dad's blindsided on me, so I want to I want to hear the story from you. It was, uh, I guess it was, first of all, he's more than capable of doing that. So in order to do that, I think you can't just put anybody up there. They have to be ready to do it, and he's definitely ready to do it. He probably didn't think so, but he was. And uh, it was my, my retirement party. It was four-plus years ago. And uh, so the way that the town, the band festival in the town, and everybody decided to celebrate that was to have it be the theme for the band festival. And so I got to invite people like Doc Severinsen and 
Alvazudi, Jens Lindemann, and others who all were there and some of my favorite bands and things. And I got to play a bunch and hear them people play for me and it was great. And then there was, of course, there was this big finale as well as my big band playing. And so in the, in the finale, we needed people to play the solo parts. So I said, well, Gabriel's the perfect person to do that. We all, I don't know how many people were in that finale. I couldn't tell you. There was a lot. 40 or so or 50 former students and professional trumpet players like Doc Severinsen and Al Vizzuti and Gabriel and Al Hood. And I just, I can't even name Rich Illman, who was one of my very, he was my first senior recital. He taught at Eastern Kentucky. And then he taught for 25 plus years at Michigan State. And he was here and so many others. I, and that's how Gabriel got to do it. But he was last minute. I just said, oh yeah, Gabriel, make sure you learn this because we're going to play this in the finale. And that's, that's about all I told him. We, we'd done things like that before, but this was a little different because it was, there's 40,000 people there. <laughs> so I guess I never thought about it that way. I guess he, he gave you a much different perspective than I had on it because I didn't really... I, I think of him as a almost not only as my son, but as a colleague anymore, hmm. because he's such a fine player. When you step out of the house, you're not thinking about that part of it. You're just thinking about, is this person capable of doing this? Hmm. And that's it. And the, the fact that he's my son makes it even that much better. Yeah. That had he, to have been a, a highlight for you for the festival. Is there any oh, yeah. other memories that sort of stick out in your mind as like, Little, for the festival? Yeah, for the festival or your career. I want stories. I think I spent a great deal of time educate as an educator. And, of course, every one of those things that I did, I feel strongly about. Because I think traveling around and reinforcing the things that all the great teachers are doing around. There's nothing better for a teacher than somebody coming in and saying, you really need to do this with your sound a little better. And, of course, the teacher smiles and because they've told the student that 10 times in the last month. Mm. And I think you, you don't go there to to do anything but that, to reinforce the good work that people are doing, and also give the students an, an exciting experience about the sound of a trumpet that they might not have heard before live. Right. So that's you don't forget that. The first trumpet player I ever heard live was Louis Armstrong mm. and Maynard Ferguson in the same night. And I talked to both of them. So that changed my life. I didn't know it at the time that would, but it did. Hmm. So I remembered that, and I, I've always thought of my mission to teach as much more important than my mission to play, which was always fun for me, challenging <laughs> as it is sometimes. But the playing part of it, I can think of many times. I played with the Cincinnati Pops. I made many recordings with the Cincinnati Pops and played in Carnegie Hall with them and Radio City Music Hall all over the country on tours with them. I've been lucky to be, play with the Boston Pops as a soloist and played a tribute to Harry James, as a matter of fact, mm. with the Boston Pops. And I toured with them on some short tours, too, as a soloist. And so that, that's always really exciting. Played with the military bands. I've played with almost every military band. I think I haven't played with the Coast Guard band. Yeah. I think that's about all. And played with the Marine Band a few times. Matter of fact, they told me when I played with the Marine Band that I was the first civilian soloist that they'd ever had. Really? That was that wasn't, a, and I couldn't believe that. It was, one of my students is the chief warrant officer of the Marine Band now. 
Doug Burian, and his dad was one of the assistant conductor of the Marine Band. And he was the one that told me, he says, you know you're the first person outside the Marine Band that's ever been a soloist. Except in the White House when they backed up people there. Sure, of course. was actually brought in just to do that with the band. Yeah. So I went, really? I had no idea. But playing with the Marine Band, playing with the military bands is really an honor. Hmm. Because playing with people that are serving the country and in a different way maybe than on the battlefield. But very important because the service bands provide music for people all over the country that of a quality that they might not ever hear live. And I think people in the country deserve that. There should be some arm of the government providing music at the highest level for every citizen to enjoy live. And the military certainly, the military bands certainly provide that. I played in Alaska with the band up there at Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage. And I can tell you that the people in Anchorage, that band is no longer active because they came back. But I can tell you that band provided a tremendous asset to that community in the arts area. And they don't do it anymore because they're not there. So the military bands that I've done, and of course, having one trumpet lesson like I did this morning, is just as important to me hmm. as doing those other things. Cool. I think your life's work isn't determined by where you are at that moment. Hmm. It's determined by the, the the effort and the work that you put into it, which enables you to move that freely, I think, among different places. Yeah. I love that, yeah. how you say that when you're a soloist, you're more, you. I guess you consider yourself, that's a teaching role when you're playing. <laughs> And you can inspire someone to maybe take a leap of, take a step that they maybe they've been afraid to do. And exactly. they see, here's this Vince DiMartino, look at what he can do with a trumpet. Why can't I do it? Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. And I, I tell them that Vince is not the brightest light on the block. I can do this. What can you do? Hmm. I said, I think lots Extraordinary. It would be fun to find out what you can do. But unless you give it nth degree work, you'll never find out how good you could be. And that's okay if you don't you don't have any aspirations. But if you do, I said, I know I wasn't going to be a trumpet player. I was going to be a dentist. Figured out that I really enjoyed practicing and playing. And I wanted to teach. I wanted to be just like my band director, who's still the greatest role model. I have a poster here, right? that I can show you. It's it's right in my office here. I'm going to show it to you. On my 50th birthday, my band director gave me this. I don't know if you can read it. It says, From Arben to Franquin? To Franquin. Franquin. To La Fosse. Yeah. To De Ulio. To? To Di Martino. That's the lineage of trumpet study. He was my band director, Delio. Mm. He studied with La Fosse, who studied with Franquin, who studied with Arben. My goodness. And that's what I said, too. Wow. And there's his Arben book. Okay. My band director's Arben. There's my band director. Okay. And he was every bit as much the drill sergeant <laughs> as books. There's my band playing at the World's Fair. And that's you. Or not. That's me. That's my first <laughs> job at UK in 1972. Okay. 
I can't see what that's Glenn Drews in that picture who was the top one of the top trumpet players in New York. Mm, he was right. in the band. Okay. That's another bunch of pictures. Wow. I can't that's in high school. That's some of the people in the band and everything. And I realized that I was lucky to have a person like that to inspire me. And that's what I always wanted to be was I'll say, gosh, look at he did that. And he played trumpet really well though. I did get lessons from him. He would turn over the he would give me something. I'd be practicing sounding what I thought sounded pretty darn good. And he'd say, Oh boy, that sounds really good. And then he'd turn over about bunch of pages in my Arvin book and say, let's hear you play that. And of course, it would be something like a lip slur that I never really worked on too much. And then he'd say, oh, gosh, that doesn't sound very good, does it? And then he would leave. That was it. That's all I was going to get from him. But he knew that I was the type of person that was saying, no, I will sound good on that. And I'd practice it until I could play everything on those pages. And he'd come back a few, two, three weeks later and go, hey, that's really starting to sound pretty good. Let's hear you play this page. And I struggled to play triple tongue on one note. And the same thing. You say, wow, you really better work on that. That doesn't sound very good. So that's how I learned to play the Arvin book. It's a real teacher because he understood me. Now, there's other students that sat right next to me, in some cases, who couldn't play the tuning B-flat scale, and he never said anything to them. He knew that they didn't want to be in study because there were people that would beat them up or make fun of them or whatever. So they didn't want to be in study hall. They wanted to be in band because nobody would bother them in band. You know what I mean? He was a fantastic band director. Yeah. Our band was just an average small band, about 50 people. And inside that band, about five or six people would go into music every year. That's a tremendously large percentage. There are not the top bands in high schools that kids graduate. Most of them don't have anywhere near that many kids going into music. Yeah. They're still really great bands, way better than my high school band ever was. But it was a different thing going on there. He And we had theory class. There were four people in theory class. We had a high school theory class. It was the first one in New York State that had a regents exam because mm. my teacher paid the exam up. The, the choral teacher, she was just as demanding as he was. And she would go, okay, we're going to have dictation now, four-part writing, and I'm going to play it three times for you. And I raised my hand. I go, wait a minute. There's four parts. You'll have to. <laughs> Carefully, won't you? Listen very carefully. Here we go. That was it. No discussion. We had to get all four parts in three listenings. Mm. How did but you do? How did you do? I was pretty good at it. Yeah. When I, to say, when I went to Eastman, theory class was easy. <laughs> Compared to my high school theory class, it was easy. But they were preparing every mm. student for what they needed. Now, they didn't have one size fits all and you had to do this, or you weren't good, or you were this or that. They understood what band was for and choir. She'd say, Vince, do you want to be in choir? I'd say, no, I don't want to sing. I don't really want to sing. Do you want to pass theory? I'd love to be in your choir. <laughs> that was, it was a different era. Let's just say that. 
It's a different time, and I miss those times. Yeah, they were simpler times. Mm. They were more localized, very family orientated in a sense, meaning not home families, but our family in that particular music program was very close and worked very hard. Yeah. And it was, I wouldn't trade that for anything. Things are localized now, but they're all online. All the communities are online. People ignore their neighbors. They don't know anybody. That live next door. They just know, yeah, they just know what people are saying online. People become very bold with their lack of information. Yeah. A lack of correct information. People's thoughts out there that really are not necessarily true. I don't purport that anything that I say is true. I just do the best I can to disseminate information um, that people can store and hopefully use at some time in their life. <laughs> I don't ever say the way to do it. Or that person doesn't know what they're talking about because I don't know where all that's coming from. And unless they insult somebody, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Are there any elements of technology that you think can provide a better learning experience than when you were a kid? Like um, YouTube, Spotify, stuff like that? I use YouTube all the time for good and for bad. <laughs> and there's no greater invention than your ear. If you choose not to use your ear, no technology can help you in music because music is an oral experience. So well, you have to hear it yourself. I use the video recorder almost every other day or so myself. For me, I have my QuickTime video. I just set up new movie recording, push the button. There's a thing that looks just like what. Yeah. And then I play my trumpet, shot it off play it back and go, oh, oh, you thought that sounded good. It didn't. And this is why I evaluate what I'm doing. It's better for you to evaluate it before you hit the stage than after. Yeah. So I, I try to fix spots. I don't usually record whole things, but I'll record sections of things that I don't, I'm having trouble playing for whatever reason. And then I figure out ways to get better. Yeah. So is your performance schedule tapering off a little bit as you advancing yeah. years or uh, yeah how's your trumpet playing can you play do you have the same stamina or the same range as you did 20 years ago or no no way i'm but at the same time when your knowledge there's what's any kind of learning curve like a professional golfer okay they last pretty long and up to a certain point of course they don't win as many tournaments anymore their coordination is not good as good their stamina to just walk the course is not quite as good. And, of course, the younger golfers that are starting to gain the same experience surpass them. That's great, and that's fantastic. Yeah, I love hearing all of my young friends play the trumpet. There's What could be better? <laughs> hearing somebody like Gabriel going through a process that I was privileged to be part of and continue to be, but at the same time, there are things that I do way better than I used to. My music is, I'm a better musician than I ever have been. I listen to some of the early recordings and things, and I go, I'm glad they didn't make too many recordings of me when I was younger, because they would have been youthful. So you can do things, you were able to do things on the trumpet then that you can't do now, but you consider yourself a better musician now. Physically. physically. Yeah. And there's some things that I sound better on than I did when I was physically stronger. 
What? Because I've my goals like just making my sound really even throughout mm. the whole range of the trumpet. Okay. When I used to play high notes, they would be always just sizzling notes. Well, a lot of music doesn't require sizzling high notes. Yeah, most of it doesn't. It requires high notes with a beautiful sound. And over the years, my sound has changed so that it's more even. It's more similar across the whole range of the instrument. My stamina is not quite what it used to be, <laughs> but I can play a lot of the things that I've always played, hmm. which I'm thankful for. And I'm thankful that I was ever able to play some of the things that I got a chance to play that maybe some people would never get a chance to play. Because maybe they just worked for that. They didn't have that goal in mind. Sure. Just for a frame of reference, what is, just curious, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but what is your range? Like, how high can you play? Not to sound like a trumpet geek or anything, but... Still, I can play as my same range that I always had, up to C sometimes, B-flat almost all the time, high B-flat. And even more importantly, I can play low F-sharps now. And I mm -hmm. couldn't do that when I was 18 or 19. I couldn't figure out how to play any of those low notes. And all through college, I struggled with playing low notes. So I'm really excited about my low range. I can play pedal C's <laughs> in tune, open. No spit Nine. valve. Yeah, no spit valve trick. Just nice. Because I started to realize that, gosh, if I did this the same way as I do my other notes, duh, they'll all come out. Hmm. And if you discipline yourself to do it. So I, there's a lot of things I do a lot better. I play more in tune than I did when I was really younger. I'm more compatible with other instruments than I was when I was really younger. Mm. I was truly a trumpet geek, you know? And some people, when I say that, they always just say, oh, that was never true. I say, comparatively, the way I feel now, yeah, it is true. <laughs> I say, no. I say, you don't feel that way, but I do. And, and my high range is better in some ways because it's more even. All the way up to high Gs, I feel like I can play almost pianos with the same resonance. Yeah. Anyone still listening to this interview is a trumpet geek, so don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> Vince, we're, up, we're just about out of time, but I want to close just by giving you the floor. I want to let you say whatever's on your mind for young, old players. I just want to let you say what's yeah. on your mind right now. I think the most important part about what any person could do, especially older people, is to assist younger people, give them good thoughts. There's nothing greater than the process of apprenticeship. It's not just taking lessons. It's really figuring out how your music fits into the world. And for me, it's as a teacher, as an asset to a community, maybe most of the time trumpet players and other musicians, but, but so that you have a purpose that's greater than just your trumpet. Because when your trumpet playing finishes, it's finished. When your teaching finishes, it goes on for generations. Well, that is a wrap for this episode of Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. Are you a true listener? Visit TrumpetDynamics.com to learn how you can be notified each time a new episode is published. And if you really like what you hear on this podcast, the best way to support me and the show is to subscribe to my daily email newsletter, where I share what I learn and observe in life in an infotaining way. Many folks have told me they enjoy the emails, and I think you will too. Again, the best way to subscribe to the email newsletter is to visit trumpetdynamics.com. Thank you for listening to this episode. 
and will be in your earballs soon. Music